You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, good morning and Happy New Year to you. We welcome 2021. Amen? You know, one in survey said, if you chose one word to describe 2020, the survey that you'll see here, the number one word that many chose were the words awful, terrible, horrible. Maybe that's your word. I wonder what word you might choose to describe this previous year. More importantly, I wonder what word would God choose to describe this previous year. All that being said, I thank God that 2020 is in the rearview mirror, and we look forward to 2021 to great things. If you've got a copy of God's Word, would you keep it open to the passage that was just read for us? in the book of Ephesians. Now, some of you have smartphones, smart tablets, invite you to just keep it right there. Uh, If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, there is a black book in front of you, and I want to invite you to turn to page 1159. Hold up your Bible with me for just a minute. Who brought a copy of God's Word? Hold that up and let me tell you a story. In North Korea, it is illegal to have this. It's illegal to have this. It's so illegal that they will put you in a prison camp, a concentration camp, perhaps for the rest of your life. This book is so dangerous, the totalitarian dictatorship of North Korea will even infiltrate your children and ask your children, they'll give in a famine, more meat, more chicken, whatever that might be, to say, does mom and dad have a copy of God's Word stashed away? The moment they discover that, Junior may not have realized at the moment, but he's essentially seen the last of his parents. This is a dangerous book, but it is a life-changing book. And so what I want to do with you in the next moments is begin a study for the weeks to come on the book of Ephesians, a New Testament letter. When you think of this letter, you can think of two words in particular, precise and clear. Clarity and precision. Now, why those words? Well, because... Ephesians is timeless truth. Precise because it's timeless truth. Clear because it's timeless truth. It's truth because we need this. We need this for our relationship with Almighty God. We need this for our relationship with one another. You know, you need the truth. Every time you turn on your GPS, you're asking for truth. You're asking for true navigation from point A to point B. When you go to a medical doctor, when she gives you the diagnosis, when he gives you the diagnosis, you're not wanting anything but the truth. You're wanting an accurate diagnosis of what is happening in your life. And we need the very same with the relationship with God and our relationship with one another. And when you go to Ephesians, why would we spend so much time looking at this? Because this book's going to teach us about spiritual warfare. It's going to teach us about how to relate with one another in marriage and how to be parents It's going to speak to us about how to pray. It's going to teach us about even things like racial reconciliation. Imagine if our forefathers had paid attention to this very book, the hurt that they would have saved the American society over the last several centuries. This is a powerful book that speaks of timeless truth. In fact, more than a century ago, a man named John said, this letter is pure music. It is truth that sings. I love that. Truth that sings. Ruth Paxson called the book of Ephesians the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon of Scripture. 
because the depth of it here is imaginable. So here in the introduction, verses 1 and 2 is our focus this morning. Now, I pray that you are already considering a Bible reading plan. Studies have shown that if you are serious about your spiritual growth, you will read the Bible. It's the one tool. It's the one tool that does more than anything else, time after time, to increase your spiritual growth. And so we've got a web page in our HBC. Go there, Cross Church, DFW, go there, and you'll find the Bible reading. But here in the introduction, verses 1 and 2 is going to be our focus this morning. Now, likely, if you were reading through Ephesians, you would turn your mind off when you got to this. You would think, this is just throwaway stuff. I don't need this. Well, the next few moments, let's see if there's some powerful, truthful things that God wants to teach us. Beginning in verse 1, I want you to notice the very first word, Paul. Like any letter, the letter is written by someone to another person. It's written from Paul to the believers who are in Ephesus. More on that in a moment. So essentially, the beginning of the letter just says, Hi, my name's Paul, and I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. It'd be the way you would introduce yourself if you were in an airport or in a new meeting or whatever the profession you might do. It's the way in which, powerfully, the Bible teaches us the letter begins. So there again, the word Paul. Look at that with me. Who is he? You'll notice that Paul... Paul was born in a middle-class family, like many of you. He was born in a town that was situated between the mountains and the coastal sea. His life would begin a little bit earlier than Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he would die about three centuries after Jesus Christ rose from the grave. We know, history tells us, that the man who wrote this letter would write it from a Roman prison cell. About a decade after he was in Ephesus, Nero would execute him, give him the order. The great fire there in Rome, Nero wanted to blame on the cult called Christians. He would round up their leaders and he would give the order for execution to behead Paul. Paul is extremely relevant even to this day. About 20 years ago, college professors were surveyed and they were asked to speak and write down the most influential people in American and Western civilization. Paul listed as fifth, actually tied for fifth. So even those in the know speak of the power, the influence that this man has as we open up his letter. He was an ardent and he was a zealous follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he wasn't always that. Some of you in your early 30s, that's about the time that Paul took off hoping to exterminate Christians and that's when he realized that Jesus Christ was alive and he was literally stopped in his tracks. Now, when it comes to this city, Ephesus, you'll notice that the Bible says he writes it to the Ephesians. There was a city called Ephesus. So let me just help some people here in the room. What you have in front of you is not a myth. It's not a fable. This is a real man. We know that Paul lived, and this was written to real people in a real city. You can go to Ephesus today. It's in modern-day Turkey. And if you were there, you would discover several things. Among the things you would discover that Ephesus was a moving, blowing, and going city. It was the place where if you wanted to make it, you would go to Ephesus. Like Dallas-Fort Worth, all these smaller towns around us. If you really want to make a good living, 
Most of the time you have to come to the city, and Ephesus was just that. It was a moving economy. In fact, we see this city that Paul comes to, about a quarter million people. That's what they estimate was the population. It was a third leading city in the day behind only Rome and Athens. So again, this is a real book. This is a real person that has written this, written to real people. In fact, Ephesus was so important, archaeologists have discovered that in other nearby towns, you would find mile markers that would tell them how many miles it was to Ephesus. We see that even today, right? We get into smaller cities. We're on Highway 20, Highway 30, west and east of here, or north on 35, and it will tell us how many miles to Dallas, how many miles to the, the real city of Fort Worth, right? That was Ephesus. It was an important city. Now, had you gone there with Paul, you would have been there between 50 and 52 AD, about 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He would spend three years in this city. From what we know of his life, he would spend more time there than any other city doing ministry. He would write this letter right about 60, 61, 62 AD, about three to four, five years ahead of his execution. So as we open it up, if you were to walk in the city with him, if you were to go to Turkey, you would see the remains of the one thing that would catch your eye when you'd walk in the city. Now, you know, even in our day, wherever you are in Dallas-Fort Worth, what is the one thing you can see from almost anywhere? Jerry's World, right? You see AT&T Center. It's remarkable where you can see that crazy building from. There in the city of Ephesus, you would have seen what would be the size of approximately a football field. 400 feet in length, 200 feet in width, 60 feet high, 127 marble columns, all dedicated to the temple of Artemis or Diana. This was a difficult ministry for Paul. They pushed back against him. They hated his presence, and yet he was perhaps as successful here as he was in any city. There was lots of men and women, lots of boys and girls who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Years later, Paul would write in the letter to Corinthians, he said, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, he's not literally talking about fighting with a beast, but I bet if you ask Paul, would you rather have wrestled or fought against the beast or dealt with what you did in Ephesus? He said, I would have chosen the physical battle. They pushed back against him, but he had a remarkable ministry. God put his hand on this man, the city of Ephesus. Notice carefully as we just look out back in verse 1, the Bible here introduces Paul an apostle. And there's not a throwaway word in your Bible. There's not one throwaway word. Every word is important. Every word matters because truth matters. In a day and time when we feel like we can go by our feelings, we need the truth. And the Bible says here, Paul is an apostle. So imagine if you met Paul, stuck out your hand, I'd tell him what I do for a living, he'd say, great, I'm an apostle. And you'd look around like, what's an apostle? Like you're at the opera, what, what are they doing? I have no idea. An apostle meant a sent one. A sent one, that's literally what the word it means. Get this, it's estimated that Paul walked 9,000 miles by foot. You may not be impressed with that until you probably walked the first 100 miles and you think 9,000 is a lot. It's likely that he traveled some 15,000 miles in a 30-year career as an apostle. Of no one else can it be said like it can of this man. 
he was indeed a sent one. Every time he put his foot on new soil, he went with the one purpose of spreading the good news that Jesus Christ is alive and he's here to save. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. Now, that is a special authority. There are no apostles today. No matter what your television, Christian radio, and all that crazy stuff that goes on, there are no apostles alive today. An apostle means I've seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul would be the last one to be included within that. God had invested in him an authority that we can trust to this day. Isn't it remarkable? He wrote this letter probably in a prison in Rome. I'm so grateful for the per- people who persecuted Paul. Now, <laughs> you said, what, Pastor? Let me say it again for those who are about half awake. I'm so thankful for the persecution of the Apostle Paul because there were idiots in the first century that put him in prison. It made him write these truths down. And I'm a benefit to those great truths today. Imagine where we'd be if he only said it orally and we didn't have it written down. By the way, when you look at the letter, six chapters, all of it, I beg you to find a sentence, a verb, even one word where he's begging for his own freedom. It's remarkable the man who was in prison did not write for his freedom, but for our freedom. So he says, I'm an apostle. Notice these next words here. They're in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. You know what we need in 2021? We need to be on the path of the will of God. We need to be in God's will. That phrase appears seven times in the letter to Ephesians. It appears more times in this book, this letter, than any other book in your New Testament. And we need to be on God's path. We need to be in His will. God has a will. Friend, you are not, as Francis Crick said, the inventor of DNA, not the inventor of it, but the discoverer of DNA, said we're nothing more than a bunch of neurons. You're more than that. You're more than science and nerves and cells and biology. You've been given purpose. You've been created. The Bible says that God himself breathed life into Adam. And today we have that breath. We have that life. We have purpose. And we live not by fate. We live not by luck. We live not by chance, but we live by the will of God. You know, there are many in our day and time that say there's not evidence of God's existence. Influencers speak of deconversions, people that grew up in the church and now have left. Influencers speak of atheism today. Freud called it a wish fulfillment. What is a wish fulfillment? I wish there be no God. That's not how Freud said it. So therefore, I'm going to come up with a theory that there is no God. C.S. Lewis was at one time an agnostic, maybe an atheist. He called God the transcendental interferer. That's what my wife, my wife is. She's an interferer in my life, right? All of us who are married know that kind of thing. She's not here this morning. She's not feeling well, and she doesn't need to know what I'm saying. <laughs> C.S. Lewis called God the great interferer. He said, I wanted, I wanted to put a sign out that said, leave me alone. Don't bother me. And so many times in our day and time, we want not anyone to tell us to do what is right. We want to be in charge. We want to live our lives the way we want to live our lives. And so we come along and we figure out, oh, here's a theory that explains everything that says there is no God. That's called wish fulfillment. You know what we need? We need to know that there's a God in heaven 
And there's a day coming when Scott Mays will appear before Almighty God, and I'm going to give an account of my life to him. And you will give an account of your life to him on that day. Jesus had such an ego. They say everything's bigger in Texas. Jesus' ego was the biggest of all. I'll leave it to you to determine whether he was right and real or not. But he said, I will be the one to determine everyone's eternal destiny. That's what Jesus said. Some of you here today think he's a great teacher only. Great teachers do not claim to be God. Great teachers do not claim to say, I'm going to be the one to determine balls and strikes in the celestial kingdom of eternity. And so here we are today. We need to be on the path of God, on the will of God. And friend, your story is not determined by fate, luck, or chance. Your story is not determined by the people that are in life, in life around you or even you. Your story is determined by an almighty God. He is the great interferer. And by the grace of God, he'll interfere in your life and make something of you. Notice the next words here. He says, to the saints, at the end of verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. You see that word? Now, I went to school in Kentucky, so pardon my lack of education. But remember this next sentence. I think it's simple enough for all of us to grab. You either a saint or you ain't. You either a saint or you ain't. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Many of us think a saint is someone that's a super-duper Christian, someone that's done a miracle. Some of you may come from a Catholic background where there are certain people who are saints. Some of you come from no background. You think they're a football team only in New Orleans. Some of you think that it's someone that gets a stained glass picture of themselves in a church someplace. Well, there's two ideas on how sainthood is achieved. It's either achieved or received. And for our Catholic friends, it's the idea that's achieved. That if you are super duper enough, if you're earnest enough, if you do all the right things, check off the right boxes, even if Baptist life or otherwise, if you do all that, then you are a saint. That is, I can achieve sainthood. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that saint is something that's received. It's received. A saint is nothing but an ordinary believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, someone who trusts in Jesus. The letter opening that we're looking at here in Ephesians 1 is similar to many times he will do this. He'll do it over in Corinthians. He'll do it over in Philippians. Others will say, I'm writing to the saints. For example, in Corinthians, now watch this. You'll see this on the screen. Look what he says here. Can we read it together? You ready? Here we go. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Stop right there. Saints. Do you know the people in Corinth? If you were to be a pastor in the first century and give your choice of churches, which you want to sort of run or govern or lead, the last one on the list is Corinth. They sued one another. They slept with anything that walked. They didn't love one another. The rich ran over the poor. They did everything wrong in that church. And Paul still says, still says, under the inspiration of the Scripture and the Spirit of God, that these are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a saint is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, those of you who are worshiping with us online, you are a saint. You could call me Saint Scott, not because of anything that I do, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would call you Saint Susan or Saint whatever your name is. To be a saint is to be recognized as someone who is having been with the Lord Jesus Christ, having been pure and holy. 
That is the word, saint. In fact, let's just stop here, make this extremely simple and applicable to our lives as we begin 2021. Experts tell us there are 7.8 billion people in the world today. We're nearly at 8 billion. And while God looks down at us from heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, he could see the racial diversity, he could see economic diversity, he could see all the colors and all the various mechanisms that make us unique and individual, but he sees only two categories of people. The Bible says this over and over and over again. It says it again and again. The Bible says you either have peace with God or you're at war with God in the book of Romans. The Bible says, and Jesus himself says, you're either one of my sheep, one of my children, or in his metaphor, you are a goat. Jesus himself said, either for me or you are against me. In fact, in this text, in verse 1, there's those words, in Christ Jesus. Three little words. That will appear some seven times in the letter. In Christ Jesus. You're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either walking, Jesus said, a wide path in this world that is easy but leads to destruction in the next life, or you're walking a narrow and difficult path in this life that leads to everlasting life in your next life. You're in one of those two categories. You say, I'm not sure, Pastor, which one I'm in. And that's why here in Christ Jesus, you don't get there automatically. The default setting at birth is not in Christ. This is binary. For those of you who are in the computer world, I'm told everything is zeros and ones. If I'm wrong about that, don't correct me. Just leave me to my ignorance. This is binary. This is either on or off. You're in Christ or you're not. And at default, at your birth, if nothing happens you will be defaulting outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must convert to Christ. That's how you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a child of God? And I'll just share with you a couple different conversion stories. This kind of thing happens. I'm attracted to these stories down through the centuries. I love hearing how people come to the Lord Jesus Christ. One in which I was really intrigued with over the break, Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh had a painting that sold in 1987 for $57 million. Imagine what that painting would be worth 30 years later. While I knew some pieces about Van Gogh, what I didn't know, Van Gogh grew up as the son of a Lutheran pastor. He himself was a pastor in a poor district in his country. In fact, he was kicked out of his denomination. He was not stable at many points of his life, but they did not like that he lived so much underneath the means of his salary. He lived too poor. So he was kicked out of the Dutch Reformed, and he was rejected by the Methodists. Neither one of them wanted, but he loved the Word of God. He said, and I quote, he had 900-plus letters that are available to us today. He said, quote, the Bible is my solace. The Bible is my solace, my support for life. It's the most beautiful book I know. He continued and said, I read it daily until I know it by heart. In his day and time in the 1800s, he would go and hear Spurgeon preach. Others like D.L. Moody. In fact, at the end of his life, when he was in a mental institution, he painted the resurrection of Lazarus. It's recorded in John chapter 11. It's Jesus' good friend. But what's intriguing about Van Gogh's painting is that in Lazarus' face, many think it's Van Gogh's face. 
the distinctive red beard. When you read his letters, he loved the resurrection. He was drawn to it. Everyone must be converted. Now, your conversion may not look like mine, and our conversion may not look like Vincent's, but you must be converted to Christ. I'll give you one more, Jim. Jim was a detective. He was, in the words of those around him, a furious, angry atheist. He says to his knowledge, until he was 35 years of age, he didn't give a second thought about Jesus Christ and knew no real believers. 18 years into marriage, his wife says, with kids that are in preschool, we ought to consider going to church. They showed up at church one day, like you're doing today, and the pastor was preaching. And Jim wanted to know, a detective, as he heard the pastor, is that true? So Jim left church that day with the thought of that's true ringing in his mind. And he went and got the cheapest Bible he could find. He got a pew Bible, $6. He still has it to this day. And the angry atheist, the detective, sat and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He marked up the four Gospels. He color-coded them. He put them under the same forensic study that he would put a thief or a murderer to see whether they were telling the truth. And Jim said, it was after several months that he discovered that the story of Jesus rang true, the four Gospels. They considered, he considered them to be true. They met the forensic evidence. He said, I wasn't converted at that moment. He said, I was doing a stakeout. I was a secondary stakeout, not the primary, and so we would cover a house, he said. And we might have a couple of hours just sitting there waiting for the alleged thief or the burglar to do something. And he said, I was reading the book of Romans, another letter that Paul wrote. And he said, and I quote the following, he said, the light bulb went on. And I realized I had a real need that was met in the person of Jesus. Until you know you need a Savior, there's just a Savior sitting over there. And at some point I realized that he was for me. You see, for Jim, it wasn't just enough that Jesus was true. He had to realize that he had a need for a Savior. Everyone needs to be converted. Your conversion may be like Vincent's. Your conversion may be like Jim's. Or your conversion may be like Paul's. Paul, in his own words, he said, I traveled to execute Christians. Speak about your angry people. <laughs> he said, I went out of my way to arrest them. He said, it was my, my purpose in life to make Christians blaspheme. He was on his way to modern-day Syria when that happened. This is a story about real people in a real book. This is real life. And he was on his way to Damascus, when Paul, religious, he already had a, a shingle of religion out front of his, if he was a, a store, he was already religious. Everybody needs to be converted. Whether you're Baptist, Catholic, Jewish, everybody needs Jesus. And so it was there that Paul said he heard these words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Paul must have been a good southern boy because he had two names, Saul and Paul. Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know what Paul said back? He said back what I would have asked. Well, who are you, Lord? Paul was stopped in his tracks that day because the man whom he was persecuting, he was convinced was dead. 
At the moment that he realized that Jesus was alive, everything changed. Your conversion may look different than Jim's or Vincent's or Paul's, but make no mistake about it, you need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. And this is the big categories the Bible uses. And how do I become a saint? Well, the grace of God makes you a saint of God. I love this next verse, and I would invite you to commit it to memory, because nowhere does it speak more clearly, more poignantly, more concisely than this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I just want you to keep that passage there for a moment. Here you are on the 3rd of January, and we are so grateful that you're here, and you're beginning a new year. And you may be the most religious from birth. You may be a felon. The roof may cave in, thinking that you come in the church, or you may have led in a thousand different locations and offices of a church. But if you're trying to achieve, if you're trying to work your way into being a believer, friend, you don't get it. I'm convinced that most people I talk to around the world and most of you who are worshiping at home, you think there's a day coming when you will meet God and hand over your resume and say, hey, look at this report card right here. Do I get in? Because that's how colleges work, right? That's how the trade associations work. That's how you look for anybody in your life. Here's my credentials. Do I get this job? Do I get into heaven? But Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul says it doesn't work that way. You don't hand over your resume. You don't hand over your report card. It's the report card Jesus earned that you receive by grace. It's a gift, not of your own doing. That's a powerful thing. In fact, look again. The Bible says, in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Keep reading now in verse 2 with me, where the Bible says now, in the verse 1 actually, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Just looking at this and letting the Word of God do its work on us. At the end of verse 1, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you faithful? What's faithfulness look like? Well, if I called Netflix, if I could get a hold of somebody at Hulu, if somebody would answer the phone at Disney Plus and I said, hey, tell me about, and I put your name there, are they a faithful customer? And they'd look at their record, oh, they're faithful. That's all they've been doing from Christmas forward just binging. You know what faithfulness is. You don't need me to define that. Now, if I call the members of your family, those who name the name of Jesus Christ, would they say you're faithful to the Lord Jesus? For the students here, if I walked into your third period, your fourth period, and I would say, is she faithful? Is he faithful to the Lord Jesus? For those of you who are Businessmen, businesswomen, does your Monday look faithful? Are you congruent on Monday to what you profess on Sunday, or is it totally something different? If the people at work found out that you were here today and you went by the name of Jesus, would they give that look that a Pekingese dog or a Pomeranian dog with a head turned and say, my gosh, I would have never guessed that. Let me tell you something. If you want the quickest way for happiness and meaning in life, then you'll be faithful to the Lord Jesus by the will of God. Well, let's close this out and look at these words here in verse 2. 
where the Bible says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we're wanting in 2021? Grace and peace. The only way we're going to achieve grace and peace is if we embrace the truth about Jesus and ourselves. If you're going to experience the grace of God and the peace of God, then you're going to embrace the truth of God. We need truth. We don't need more information. The average student today interacts with 4.5 million pages. If it were printed up, 4.5 million pages, the average student would on any given day. We are awash in information. But we need truth. We need information that matters. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.